is Jared Anderson. This is a podcast about consciousness and transformation, where we explore the nature of consciousness and how we as humans transform. I speak with teachers, coaches, mystics, authors, and others in the transformational space. These conversations are designed to support your own growth and evolution. Welcome. My name's Jared. That is Jennifer. I don't know if I got it right on which side of the screen. <laughs> oh, that is so funny. I'm really excited to talk to you today um, for a lot of reasons. But before I'm going to like just kind of set up a little bit of like who you are and we'll jump into the topic and everything else. So I just want to say Jennifer is Lovely is an ontological coach. She's a recovery coach and an embodiment somatic practitioner who empowers those who want to reclaim their lives back and desire to be more than what your past has told you you are. Jennifer is deeply committed to the work of transformation, who has spent years transforming her heart, soul, and spirit. Jennifer loves the messy grit of life and getting her hands dirty with her clients. Reclaiming grace is a self-love revolution, disobeying the beliefs that we are taught as a child. Jennifer works with you one-on-one and does group work. She has a podcast also called The Recovery Channel, which is kind of a lot of what we're talking about today. But with all that being said, she's actually just one of my favorite people on this planet, and she is she's phenomenal. We, we were in coaching training together for a good year, and we did a lot of deep work together. So I'm excited to have you on today and to jump in. Yes, and what I also loved about our training <clears throat> is that I spent the entire year laughing <laughs> <laughs> and I am still the funniest person in the room <laughs> Listen, we're never gonna solve this question I know it's done yeah. I'm the funniest person in the room that was so funny the best part of it is like I really think that I needed that year to just laugh like you know it was leadership training and there was just so much joy and, and fun that came out of that. And I'd like to <clears throat> start also by saying that that process was an amazing healing experience for me and my relationship to men because of you, um, our lovely boy, Niall and uh, Jerry, and then also Rodney, right? Like, so there was just this beautiful thing that, emerged from that so that was really cool well thank you for saying that that i mean that's one of the highest compliments you can bestow so thank you very much i'm so happy that we could be stand in that place for you i seem to remember a lot more than laughing there was some tears and some oh yeah Well, let's jump in. What are we talking about today? We're going to talk a little bit about some recovery work and some addiction and you know, I, uh, there's a lot to say in this realm and this is where you do, you go deep and I'm just so excited to talk about it. Let's go. Why don't you start by just giving us a little bit of your history with addiction? Sure. So grew up in an alcoholic home. Um, and then, uh, my brother was a, um, addict. He actually overdosed on ether when I was in high school and was never the same after that. And then eventually um, committed suicide um, 
because his because of the overdose on ether was the flashbacks that were coming were so bad that he could never that he had to drink so much alcohol in order to sleep and even i mean it just eventually it just tore up his life it ruined everything and so that was that was very um moving if you will that changed my life but mostly i grew up with an alcoholic father um and it it just was in ran, ran rampant in my family and although i did not get the disease of alcoholism my addictions came through other ways um and i don't mind like jumping right into the the full story but having been sexually abused for seven years of my life and not understanding the value that I, who I was just as a human being in general, that that was my value. My addiction came through, through love addiction and sex. And the only way I could value myself was through those things. So the men that I chose and the relationships that I chose, um, I was only seeking value through those experiences. And so it's not surprising that when my children became of age of teenage years, that they both became addicted to methamphetamine and heroin. Thus started my journey, deeper journey into recovery and healing and really wanting something different. It's funny. I met this famous guy this last weekend. Um, He um, actually is the guy that was at Standing Rock. And he's he's a um, he's a social justice warrior. I know you love those people, but but um, <laughs> but really in all the good ways. So he uses his photography, and he was actually nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize um, for one of his photos. And he's in the Monroe Gallery of Photography. But we were talking about how. Um, my addiction with my kids. And and he goes, Oh, he goes, you went through the program. And I said, no, I said, I went through the program. I went through the steps with them because if I had not gone through the steps with them, I would not be able to speak the same language that they were began to speak. And so thus began my process of really diving deep into the work of recovery. And it's a really sacred spiritual program. As you say that, I, I just get this hit in my body about it being sacred. Um, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and I, I mean, it's such a, such a massive past and, and such a, it's a big story, you know, it's not just a story. It seems like a story is like a silly thing that we call something, but when you've lived it, I'm imagining that it's so much larger than it, there. There's just, it's like hyper, it, it's hard to be hyper, hyperbolic enough, you know, when you really yeah. feel that kind of experience in another person. Mm-hmm. So thank you for sharing. I really mm-hmm. appreciate it. And I just, I also want to honor your transparency and your vulnerability, as well as your courage to literally just be out in the open and say, hey, I'm a human and this is what I do and this is what's happened. It's not easy. So I I really acknowledge that you're out there actually being a person saying like, this is normal, this happens and, and 
really making a stand for other people in the world to, to start on the road of recovery. So if you could, could you start to tell me a little bit more about the recovery process for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that it started um, deeply in probably 2012, maybe 11, because the relationship that I had chosen to be in was was horrible and abusive and unkind. And, and what I want to say about that is I have, I can point a lot of fingers at him because he's an easy person to point, you know, imagine, um, um, you know, a, you know, a Trumper, if you will, like that type of person, you know, that personality. And when I left him, I had no more fingers to point. Crazy how that works, isn't it? <laughs> right. <clears throat> So I, I say that with all of the um, like love in the world for him and for myself, because it was in that <clears throat> my kids were blowing up. They were going to jail. They were, you know, running. Their cars were being flown off of the 405 freeway in Los Angeles because they were on drugs and driving. <clears throat> and I was going through a divorce. And at some point, I had to stop and really say, okay, God, I'm, I'm a God person, spirit, nature, whatever you, whatever you want to say is really reflecting something to me. Yeah. And I need to look, right. This is not happening to me. This is happening for me. Right. And so thus began the work of recovery. So I got a sponsor. I started doing the steps. I started working ACA um, I did transformational breathing. I did and became um, a transformational breathing coach, if you will. I um, I started doing embodiment work. I had I'm already a yoga and Pilates teacher, so I understood the inner workings. But I really started to allow that to sink into my own body. Parts work, trauma work, really looking at my teenager my 18 year old loved to run the show of my life and um it wasn't working and you know this is a coaching word but i had bankrupted all of the ways in my life like the things that i was doing was no longer working right and um and so i really just started and and it didn't happen all at once it was it and it never really can be it just began to be one foot in front of the other. Oh, I'm going to try this and allowed things to open up. And I felt like it, I was pulling or tugging on a loose string and eventually it was unraveling all of the old stuff. The material was, no, you know, was beginning to reveal itself. And it was, and, and then of course I was a part of a coaching program and inside of a coaching program is transformation. Yeah. And I got to really allow um, other people to show me how I was showing up in the world. Yeah. And I became open to that. <clears throat> and that's not easy. It's fucking hard, Jared, as you know, right? It's like yes. you have to sit in your stuff, smell it, taste it, really get the flavor of what you are emanating throughout in the world. And then be responsible for it. Like you can't, you know, you know, put perfume around it. You really have to begin cleaning it up. And 
<clears throat> I come across like I am a very actualized human being, right? As I speak about this. And what I really want people to know that it is an everyday hard job. Like it's really hard. It's not easy. And it's really painful. There is not one word you've spoken that I haven't cheered for internally. Like I haven't really just resonated with, which is why we're talking, which is why we're friends. It's why we have this beautiful connection. Um, my One of my favorite teachers of all time, Ken Wilber. Um, are you familiar? Mm -hmm. He says, when you embark on the spiritual path, the naive person basically thinks it's gonna make everything better. <laughs> He's like, you're wrong. It makes the highs higher, which is true, but it also makes the lows lower. It hurts more. It doesn't hurt less to embark on the spiritual path. Yeah. And what he says though, is that as you continue to deepen your practice, it hurts more, but it bothers you less. And you know, as we, as I was briefly mentioning before, I suppose I should give just a little context for my, where I'm coming to this from. I've been in the transformational world for really the decade of my thirties and I just turned 40 and, um, really it started for me when I was 19 and I got my high school girlfriend pregnant and then the baby was, she was taken away, uh, her dad took her away from me. I got a phone call like, hey, I'm pregnant. My dad's taking me away. And so I'm left as, a as an 18-year-old kid with all of the faculties of an 18-year-old, which is nothing, mm -hmm. left with like not knowing what's happening, not being in communication with my girlfriend who's now pregnant. And it culminated in her giving the baby away for adoption mm -hmm. without talking to me at all about it. I don't fault her at all, but that through that process, I, I had the deepest, most transformational mystical experience that I've ever had. It was really profound. I was a conservative Republican Mormon just walking this way. And then that this mystical experience happens and I just turned left and I've been on that path ever since. Mm. So for my twenties, I, I was just trying to live the American life. Like I was a war veteran and I owned a house and I owned a business and I, and I hated all of it until in my thirties where I really went in and started doing a lot of this transformational work. But what's so strange to me is that because of the transformational work, it's, there's so much introspection and I was mired in introspection and practice. And like you were talking about breath work and finding all these various modalities. And just like you said, it felt like God made the perfect example for me, like the perfect conditions for me to finally see like, oh, I have addiction inside of me. Mm -hmm. And I had this calm, like this massive event that happened last year. And I realized like, oh, I'm an addict. I'm like, wow. And I'm addicted to numbing out from my pain. And it comes in various forms. It comes in alcohol and it comes in uh, video games. Those are my two big ones. Those are the ones I like the most, but they're not the end of the list. Mm -hmm. And so 
so I've got a sponsor. I'm doing step work. But what the, the part of me that's so crazy, the, the part that's so crazy to me is that I literally thought there's, the, I'm not an addict. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not a this. And I thought it for so long and I was thoroughly and utterly convinced that that was true. And I'm a smart guy. I'm self-aware, uh, you know, I, I, and so that, that was what was so confusing to me. But like you said, to then have this, this sequence of events where God's like, well, here you go. And it came through a process of like trying to do some shadow work, like really diving in and being like, okay, show me what, what there is to see. So what I've noticed since that's been happening, you know, last year in COVID, it's been a tough year for everyone, including me. I, I um, you know, I live alone. And so there's a lot of time alone and I'm an extrovert, as you know, <laughs> I recharge around people. Um, and so it's really added to the, to the burden. And I noticed like the stress last year, I was numbing out more than normal mm -hmm. and it started to compound until I stopped in October. And now I'm getting close to whatever it is, four or five something months with that now. And it's not easier. It's harder. It feels like what was happening is, is that I was numbing out to the stresses of life. And now I'm here. And I'm pulling more and more of the numbing agents away. I'm, I haven't had a drink in, I don't know, almost three and a half months or something like that. I've really stopped. I've, I've reduced my video games a lot. I've tried to slow down on podcasts and just going up into my brain. And I'm going and trying to do a lot more of the embodiment work. I'm trying to, to do my daily practice, my breath work. And it's hard, like you said. Every day I show up and it just feels like I have a backlog of anxiety or something. But what it, it also seems like is, is going back to kind of the idea that I was speaking about with Wilbur is like the highs are higher and the lows are lower. So it's like a wave, but the wave I'm noticing when it gets down, I'm noticing these new depths to myself and I'm sitting in these new depths of shit. <laughs> Like you say, you have to sit in your own shit and, and it's not fun. Mm -hmm. um, and I've done that in the past enough to know that the more I sit with it, the more I actually become freer on the other side. And I mm -hmm. think that's what Wilbur's talking about with it bothers you less. You actually become free of it. It's like you're pulling around a ball and chain and it's really painful to turn around and look at this ball and chain you've been looking at, you've been dragging around, but there's something about looking at it that you can finally actually let it go. Well, I think it's in the, in the looking at it um, releases some of the shame. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like, eventually you don't know how much you've carried and you've been carrying and that when you finally look at it, it allows you to go, oh, I'm going to take that one out of my backpack and I'm going to take, I don't actually need that anymore. And you can begin lightening. And there's some stuff that we 
want to hold on to. Like there's there's a payoff, right? For us to hold on to that big frying pan that we put in the backpack and we can hang out with, right? There's something we, and I'm not suggesting we need to get rid of it all at the same time, but I'm suggesting that if we can begin looking at like, oh, I actually don't need that anymore, or I don't want that anymore, that that releases the shame. I remember I had, so I had left Southern California, born and raised, raised my kids there and, you know, left my husband was like, forget this. He was having relationships on the side. My kids were, you know, using, and I was, and my, and their dad had been telling me, this is all because of you, Jen they're doing this because of you. And I said, okay. So I boogied and ran. And that's kind of one of my, one of the things that I notice is my go-to places as I like to run. I'm a runner. Like if I can get away, I will get away. And so I ran and, um, and it, and I ran to an Island and pretty much I, you know, isolated myself from that. And it was, really allowing everything to blow up around me and just be with it. But people would ask me, where are your kids? And I'd be like, they're homeless. They're addicts living on the street. And I would just say it flat, even though it just killed me. But I said it on purpose because it allowed me to slowly but surely get rid of the shame. If we can begin to say out loud, the thing, it allows it to not own us. I heard a story. Um, I don't, I, I don't know, seen an episode maybe of the real world once. I can't, I don't know anything right. about that show. <laughs> but I was listening to an, an interview with mm-hmm. one of the, you know how they have the extreme ones, the, the guys that go crazy easy and they do all the crazy extreme they're just behaviors are beyond over the top so I think it, I want to say it was Terry Gross it doesn't matter what the interview was but he was talking to this interviewer about the experience that he had after being on the show mm-hmm. and he said watching myself on tv changed everything about my life Mm. seeing how I actually showed up in the world. It's different when we're looking at the world from our eyes out versus when we're seeing ourselves, which I think is a huge piece of what coaches do. That's the, one of the powerful things that coaches provide for people is to be loving like you're talking about, pulling, helping a person not feel shame and while reflecting that to them in a loving way. Right. But this guy, he was just talking about like watching himself on the TV and he was like, he couldn't believe that he was showing up Mm. that way. And to me, it's so remarkable because, you know, we talk about addiction. We talk about the way we're showing up in the world. We're talking about these things that we do or that we emanate, right? From like an ontological space. We have these vibes that we're emanating. And we're oblivious to it often. Mm-hmm. We are often oblivious to it. We're unfamiliar that we're showing up that way. And it's, 
there's something there's something about turning that mirror around and looking and sitting mm-hmm. and addiction and numbing out agents are one of the most powerful ways to stop turning the mirror inward and saying like really being present with like, how am I showing up in the world? And I I think it's one of the most valuable things, but like you said, it's not fun. It is not fun. It's not fun. No, and I would like, you know, both you and I have a um, special place in our heart. You've seen him in person is Gabor Mate. I've been wanting to talk to you about him today. And he says, what did addiction do for us? Yeah. And what I really love about that is that we can begin to see it from it. Like addiction is like, if you think of heroin as a nice blanket or um, love, right? A warm hug. Heroin gave my son a warm hug. It allowed him to belong. Yeah. I remember when, you know, I really deeply wanted to connect with my son and he, and on heroin, he isolated deeply. And one of the ways that I could connect with him is that he could do tattoos because he could only do tattoos if he was on heroin. Mm. Otherwise he didn't have the confidence to do it. And so I would show up and I had him do a couple tattoos on me as a way to connect with him, as a way to be with him. Wow. <clears throat> Luckily he did good tattoos on heroin. I was gonna say, that's that dedication from a mom. You're like, all right, uh, that's... <laughs> That gives you like pretty good mom street cred, but. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I so deeply just wanted to know, like, and be with him. Yeah. You know, and let him know he wasn't alone. Right. And so addiction, what it did for him is it allowed him to feel belonging. Yeah. And so from that place, if you can say, oh, Heroin allowed me to feel belonging and belonging is the thing that I missed out on and really deeply didn't have. And now I'm getting sober. How do, how can I belong? How can I create that belonging as I get sober? And so he did. And that's so great. That's what is so great about, you know, the the rooms, you know, the meetings that, you know, the recovery meetings that you go to is it allows you to feel you are not an outcast. Right, right. And I, so I love that he brings that shift totally. to, you know, Gabor does. I've what been, do you to say about him? Because you've seen him in person. Uh, yeah, well, uh, he's phenomenal. But I have, I have such a, I have a question that I've been so excited to talk to you about with Gabor Mate versus the steps, because I have deep respect for both, but there is this fundamental distinction that they make in the steps versus Gabor's philosophy. So the steps say, it's a disease model mm-hmm. that you get a disease and basically it's with you for the rest of your life. You know, as one of my friends in the steps, he's like, even if you're not drinking, your addiction's outside doing pushups, right? Meaning that if, if you go back out, if you start drinking after five years, your disease will have progressed for five years during that time. And it will actually be worse when you go back out mm-hmm. versus Gabor's idea that, that 
he doesn't view it as much as a disease. He views it as like a coping mechanism that it's curable, that you actually can go in and cure this disease. And I've noticed there's some tension when I kind of bring up Gabor to some people in the steps because there doesn't matter because some people in, in that do the step works that's that's threatening to them because I think the idea of allowing oh I can cure this disease might one day let them go back out which would probably be very problematic for them now Gabor has addressed that question as well and said if you cure the trauma if you cure the wounding if you go in and do the healing work to actually get to that place you won't want to go back out and drink again or use again it won't be necessary. There's no reason for that to like take place. But I'm hoping you could like give me your perspective on that if you have one at all. So much like my theory on self-love is a revolution because you're actually disobeying the beliefs of the system around you. Yeah. Because our, our system, how we were raised, how our society raises us does not teach us to have self-love. And so when we deeply love ourselves, it's a revolution. We are disobeying the old belief system. AA, in my opinion, this is not going to be, people are going to hate me for saying this, but in or, when you step into those rooms, and I have deep respect for those rooms. But if you step into those rooms and you, you hold on to the ideological belief system that I am an addict or an alcoholic, and I will always, always, always believe that or always be that, you belong. Yeah. If you step out and say, I'm recovered and I am no longer a heroin addict or an alcoholic and I, and I have created all of these systems around me to help me not believe that, then you are disobeying the belief system of that world, which will want to reject you. And I believe that it can be both. You can actually love AA and get so much out of AA and, and, the, and the fellowship and the book and all of it. And you can also not believe that you are an addict forever and an alcoholic forever. <laughs> I love that you say that. That's the place that I'm in right now. And yeah. that seems to be the work that I'm doing. And what I'm, what I'm really sitting with is it doesn't matter. I, I don't have to know. What I have to know is that today I get to do my work. Is that today I get to wake up and I get to go do some practice. And then I get to feel whatever it is I feel. And I get to be with whatever it is that I get to be with. And I get to show up to a podcast feeling anxiety. I get to show up to whatever. And like, as we've talked, I've noticed that that started to loosen and loosen its grip on me. And that's what I know is that today I get to be present with myself. And I don't have to know the answer to the question I posed of whether it's a, uh, what's the disease that never cures the, what's the, the word I'm thinking of? You know what I'm talking about? Like if you get a disease that doesn't have a cure and it's, it's, oh, um, you'll yeah. have it for the rest of 
for the rest of your life. Yes, I'm, and now I'm not thinking of it, but oh, I need to <laughs> Anyway, whether or not it's a disease that never has a cure or not, I, I get to just be with, I don't know the answer to that. And I don't, I don't need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that, that really lands like that's correct. That's what I just get to do today. And I also want to say that the thing is, is that trauma um, creates a neural pathway in our brain and inside of our body yeah. that remembers forever. And so the real work is for us to create new neural pathways, right? So that we can, so that we can move forward and and that's how we change behavior. And that's how we begin to start doing different things. But our belief, if you've read any of um, Bessel van der Book's book, The Body Doesn't, um, The Body Keeps Score, our body holds that trauma. And so I believe that at any given moment, we are working on a recovery or we're working on a relapse. And our relapse doesn't have to come in the form of alcohol. I love it. I just love, I was like, oh, that's beautiful. Okay, great. It, it, Keep going. It's okay. And our relapse doesn't have to come in the form of drugs or alcohol. Sure. A relapse can come in the form of going back to that neural pathway that used to feel so good. Right? And so it's us, the work is really us create, finding new neural pathways. And that is through somatic work, body work. That is through doing so, oh, I have a desire to go have sex with that person right now, but I'm going to go do this instead. Yeah. Yeah. And, and acknowledging that that is my desire to go do the thing and then doing something differently. Well, if we're going to talk about a if we're going to talk about addiction, we obviously have to talk about trauma, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's because it's real. It's there. Totally real. And the thing that's so crazy to me is, will that I think that people. I'll speak for myself. I'm having to relitigate a lot of the things in my past and acknowledge like that was traumatic. Um, Gabor talks a lot about the myth of a great childhood. And I'm like, I had a great childhood. Mm-hmm. And if my parents ever listen to this, I hope they know that I love them and I respect them. And I'm so happy I have amazing parents. And they were working a lot. They were not around. I was alone when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And my whole life, I had this story about myself. My parents would let me ride my bike way like 20 miles away from the house at like seven years old Mm -hmm. I was alone just out out and about turnkey kid which is so much of what I think our generation has a lot way more than the younger generation and I always had the story of like wasn't it amazing they knew exactly what to do with me give me freedom and while that's true there was a ton of benefits to it I'm a good self-starter I'm really good at problem solving I'm good at kind of like doing stuff with myself that's also traumatic to not feel connected and part of a really cohesive piece mm-hmm. of like a family unit where you're always taken care of. Mm-hmm. And so I noticed like, while yes, I'm good at self-starting and those things I just mentioned, I also have trust issues that I'm starting to see more and more of. Mm-hmm. And I never thought that I did. And that's the thing that's so weird. It's going back to like, 
looking and seeing more stuff. And it's just more and more layers that I'm continually uncovering. And um, I don't know where I'm going with this. It's just that I, it, it's almost like I don't know where I'm going with this. I, I think the point is, is I reach places where I think I have it solved. Mm. I'm like, oh yeah, I know this about me. For my whole life, I'm like, this was my childhood. And now that I'm like in this new territory, kind of removing some of those numbing agents and sitting in the muck, I'm having to relitigate that and re-go back over the memories. And that's what it was. So the neural pathways, it always felt like the neural pathways were set like you were mentioning around childhood, mm -hmm. like this equals good. And I know what to do here. So when I feel lonely, I know how to solve the loneliness, get on a bike and ride the bike, go do this kind of play, go do this. Mm -hmm. And if you go do this kind of play, then you won't feel lonely. So now if I feel lonely, if I feel isolated, my new kind of plays is we'll just turn a video game on. We'll just grab a beer. Mm -hmm. yeah. I would, and I, just to, the last example I would like to give, I was listening to Russell Brand and he was talking about the difficulties of being a parent. And he was with his daughter and his daughter was crying and he was like, here, have some chocolate. And his wife, seemingly a brilliant human, pulls it and is like, Russell, you're training the child to to deal with difficulty by using a substance. <laughs> and we, it's these really insidious, subtle ways that are very powerful that we're unaware of how it affects us in later life. It's yeah. so powerful. I know. I mean, and it's so funny. It's like, for instance, um, when my dog, when we get home from a midday walk, he has trained my partner to feed him a little like lunch when I only want the dog to have a morning and afternoon, you know, dinner, morning, breakfast, and, you know, because otherwise he's going to gain weight. And so, but what's, what's funny is that it, that kind of thing shows up in all areas of our life, yeah. whether it's the dog or whether it's the children that's how we, my, my parents trained my little sister. Anytime she cried, she got a bottle, no matter what. Well, she's obese now, right? Yeah. Now, am, am I blaming my parents for that? No, I'm not. But what I am saying is that we begin to create neural pathways and we begin to create um, patterns that, oh, I'm feeling something. I must have this thing. Sure. And, and I think that's different than having a full-blown addiction. Yeah, that's a good point. And so I think that we have to be able to separate that. But I do believe that when we want to really have effective change in our life and transform our lives, we have to retrain the neural pathways. And it's for us to begin looking at what those are. And those are really painful things to look at. Yeah. I don't know about you, but... I have people that, you know, want to coach with me and then they realize the depth that I want, that I'm, I'm going to go, 
I'm not willing to go there. I don't want to open up Pandora's box. I don't want to see all of that. Yeah. I just want, I just want this stuff right here on the surface to really change. Yeah. And one of the things that I notice in the rooms is that, and this is just my belief, under every alcoholic is a codependent mm. that deeply wants to please, that deeply is covering up feelings, right? And I always say, I'm way sicker than the alcoholic because I was the one trying to control the addict. Well, if you do it my way, damn it, then it will, then it's better. And if you do it like this, then it, then it'll be okay. Everybody deserves the dignity to fail. Everyone. And to find what way works for them. And so in the rooms, there's still a lot of unhealthiness because they haven't done the stuff underneath. And unless we do the stuff underneath, we'll never uncover what the feeling you were trying to get around when you were using alcohol, video games, heroin, or methamphetamine, whatever your thing is. Or shopping, or podcasts, or TV, or sex, or porn, or thinking. <laughs> that's the thing I think that's the most insidious form of addiction is thought, thought and feeling. But yeah. you know what I'm, what, what I'm really, what I've been sitting with, because I love what you're saying so much, what I've been sitting with is this notion that it's a gradient, like human behavior is just on this gradient. Mm -hmm. And there's like masters and mystics who've sat and trained themselves through deep meditation to just notice the subtlest form of attachment and release it, mm -hmm. right? I'm, I'm lucky enough to be uh, in contact with like one of the most profound women I've ever known, Diane Hamilton. She's a Zen Buddhist Roshi and she just lives here in town. And to feel how free she is and how free of attachment, it's just remarkable. So there's this, this gradient of like these mystics that have just done these work that they've released so much. And then there's this whole gradient of all the time, or excuse me, this other, uh, gradient that goes all the way to the other side of just deeply addicted because of deep pain and deep suffering. It's not, I, I have such deep compassion for so many people that are addicted to so many things, but I just see that this, there is this gradient in human behavior and human life that we're somewhere on that spectrum. We're somewhere in the middle of those two poles. And, um, I love your analogy of you're either becoming more addicted or more recovered. It's like in my analogy, you're either going this way or this way in towards one of those two poles. Yeah. And, and inside of that, you know, is choice. And you know, that's, that sounds really easy. <laughs> like, Oh, just choose it. Right. We know all about that. Just choose it, Jared. Right. We're laughing because our coaching training, we're having an inside joke right now. Sorry, everybody. Keep going, Jen. Um, and it's actually not that easy. Right. Right? Because you've got like surface change, right? The behavioral change, doing the things. And then you've got deep transformational change where it's almost as if your DNA has changed. I think you're spot on. It's like you're talking about with the neural, the, the repatterning of the neural pathways. 
Right. Right. And I do believe like when I think about my, um, my process, I had to do the surface change first. Right. And then in order to get to the deeper change, I had to kind of work through the, the hard surface of it. And, and, um, and it's painful and it's not easy. And yet it's, it was like, it was the time I realized that I was holding the keys to my cage yeah. once I got there. And I was like, oh, I can unlock this cage now. It's, it's me. And that's where choice comes in. But first we have to get all this stuff out of the way. And how do you get the stuff out of the way? And I think this is where um, the big book and AA or or some form of recovery program, it doesn't have to be that, is really great for that first surface work. I mean, you've done a lot of work, men's work, like, you know, the, the, the you know, the David Data's and the, the re, like, that's where you're really changing the neural pathways is when you're going in and you're doing that um, embodiment piece. I just reread The Way of the Superior Man. And you did? I, I, like, I just finished it, like, I, I read it twice. Um, and I've just finished it again. Like, I read it twice in a row, basically. And that book is so amazing. And he's basically saying the same thing. Be present. <laughs> That's the, the, be as present as possible. And I love, I've been, I've been taking on a lot of one of his practices, which is to sit and do nothing mm -hmm. on the couch. And whenever I am feeling some intense emotions that I notice I want to get out of and away from, my practice will be to sit on the couch. I don't have headphones on. I'm not meditating. I'm sitting. That's it. I'm just sitting. And it's hard. It's not fun. And I'll, you know, I'll sit and be with it, but it's, it's funny because I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking like, we're both coaches. We both coach people to like help transform their lives. And if I listen to this, I'd be like, why the hell would I ever do coaching work? Cause all we've talked about is how painful it is. <laughs> Well, it, that's so funny. That's so funny. I, I think that there's so much more in there. I, it is painful. And, um, but it's the, it's the way out. I, I was just about to say, it's the price you pay for more freedom. Yeah. It's the actual price you pay for more freedom. Because why we'll try do I think, you know, I had this client, so it's interesting. I've had this client who, you know, got $10 million in the bank and he, but he deeply wanted to quit drinking, but couldn't. Right. But just like he goes for a while, quits and then does it. And but he's got everything on the outside, everything, several homes, the cars, the thing. What's what's in it for them to change? Right. Yeah. It's that. In, I mean, are you asking? Because I'd love to answer the question. Yes. I'd love for you to tell me. What is it? It's <laughs> that is a. That is a, such a, it doesn't matter what you have on the outside. If the inside doesn't actually try, like correspond to what your outside looks like, I'll take, I will take living in a shack any day of the week, feeling the internal freedom. 
It reminds me of the story. Did you hear about the, the story? I think it was like a, a guy down in South America or Mexico or something and, and this like rich industrialist American or something goes and he sees this guy with a kid, his fishing pole. Mm. Tell me more, no. Okay, so this guy, he goes fishing, gets a fishing. He has, has a fish and he's got his son with him. And they're really happy and they're walking back and this industrialist comes up and he's like, hey, that's a really cool fish. And they start talking. And then this basically industrial is like, well, have you ever thought about like creating a business out of it? And he's like, why would I do that? And the industrialist is like, well, then you can have more, you can catch more fish. You can go get a bigger fishing, more fishing poles. You can start to hire people. You can create a business. You can start to sell more. And he's like, okay, and then what? He's like, well, then you'd grow to like, you know, two factories and then you could get a bigger house. And he's like, okay, and then what? Then you could, he's like, that sounds hard. That sounds like I'd be doing a lot of work. And he's just like, yeah, you got to work hard for that. He's like, okay, well, what would I get having done all that? And the industrialist is like, well, you have more money. And then eventually you can like, like basically retire, you know, but you can retire with wealth. And then he's like, well, then what would I do in retirement? He's like, well, you could spend more time with your family. Like, well, my child's right there. Right. <laughs> really happy. And we just got a fish. It's like, it's like having all the excess stuff. Like, you no, know, life is right here in front of you. I didn't convey the story as well as I would have liked to have, but life is happening right here. If we're present, there's beauty, there's magnificence. It's happening in this, in the, the most, ordinary kinds of existence and we often will reach out to fill to make it bigger to glamorize to fill these holes but no amount of 10 million dollar bank accounts is going to fill the hole inside of us right that's that's the deep work we've been talking about the whole day today so that was a meandering way of kind of answering your question. Yeah. And because at the end of the day, you're still pissed off at the waiter and the waitress, and you're still annoyed with the person that isn't dressing the way you want them to dress or look the way you want them to look. It's like, there's still this stuff inside of you. And what I got really present to, and one of the things that I love, and this is really scary for people, but I'm a little obsessed with death. And the reason I'm obsessed with death is because it's a way to live. Yeah. You know, like I already have my kids. Um, they already know that this is the music you're going to play at mom's funeral. And it's not really going to be a funeral. It's going to be a celebration of life. And we're going to have some, you know, really cool music and some rap music and some things. And my son's always like, mom, you have to stop this. And I and but what it does is it keeps me present into how do I want to live? What would it feel like if everything went away today? And when I go, is there going to be stuff that they have to clean up? Is there going to be things that they're going to find that they're going to be like, I didn't know that about my mom or that's painful. I don't want to leave this earth having them have to like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know she did that or felt that way or experienced that. Or I, I want them to, what I feel, what I feel, what I say and what I think it to be congruent. Mm. Yeah. And that to me is why we do this work is because my right. impact has got to be, um, 
bigger, that I hope that my integrity, that where I live is emanates out into the world and vibrates out into the world where people want to live in their integrity. I love it. Yeah. You know, I, I, that's, that's the game we all should be playing. And I think that's the game ultimately that we are playing. I just think that some of us are more present and conscious to that game. Well, we don't know how until we know how. That's such a good way to describe it. We don't you know? know until we know how. And, and that is why we're here, Jared, because I do believe that some of us are on this search and on and in this wanting more and wanting to understand more. And it's our job to share it with the rest of the world. It's like you, us talking about coaching or you sharing about your own peeling the layers back in of, of addiction and just your life. It's like, People want to hear that. They don't want to know like, hey, Jared, we're going to make $500,000 this month. And let me tell you how. No, they want to know, how can I not feel this way? Right. I think that right now we're seeing that in the country. We're seeing a breakdown of the American dream. The American dream is if you get this product, you'll be happy. Right. If you get this job so that you can buy this product, then you'll be happy. Right. And people are realizing that that is bullshit. Uh-huh. They've been lying to us. <laughs> They've been lying to us. It really is a form of control. It really is a form of like non-radical self-love, like, like you were talking about and have spoke, you know, ha, that you've spoken about on this. I just had a conversation last night with a person who we were talking about this, and this person is not in this world at all. And he's really struggling. He's a conservative and he's really struggling with basically. America like falling apart mm. and it is America is on the descent right now we are not improving our country is on the downslide and one thing that and through speaking to him that I, I really was um taken with is that you know in Hinduism Shiva the destroyer is right up there that god is like almost to the tippy top right? It's like Brahman and then Shiva and Vishnu. Right. And there's this worship of destruction because there's this wisdom that knows that destruction is an inherent feature of the universe. Mm -hmm. And it's a fractal feature that we see in the universe itself and every version of it on every scale in between. And that if we can be conscious to destruction and be present while destruction is happening, that actually is a good thing. Because on the other side of destruction is rebirth. And that's so, I mean, what we're talking about today is the destruction and the rebirth on the other side. So can we be present to the pain, which is the destruction part? Pain to the death part, as you're talking about. Our lives have constant, it's a constant series of deaths and rebirths. So can we be more present and can we be more um, intentional about how we die whether it's dying to this neural pathway of solving this feeling, letting that die and seeing what's reborn on the other side. Yeah, totally. To do it takes the courage to face your death, like you're talking about, but go ahead. It does, and, and you know what I, um, one of the, um, one of people that I love so much and you probably know who he is, is Rob Bell. I actually don't. 
Oh, he's um, anyways. And, but what I love about him is that he talks about suffering and how suffering is just a process by which something wants to emerge from it. Mm -hmm. And our, our whole point to doing this, this work, right. is going, stepping onto the path of this spiritual journey of whatever that is, is that what wants to emerge from it, allow the suffering to um, emerge the thing that wants to really be spoken. And it's something inside of us, inside of our suffering that really wants to be spoken. And I think of that as like, that is our soul. Our soul is like, I'm uncomfortable. And, and so I'm suffering. I'm uncomfortable. And I need to learn something. I need to grow. And so when we start suffering, it's our soul that's speaking to us saying, I need something more. Please give me something more. And when we, and that's one of the things that I, that I say that um, the work that I do is like, what is that something more that's happening? You're suffering. What needs to emerge? What needs to come out? And that's sort of the existential crisis that we begin to have that we begin to, that's what that transports us into coaching programs. And, you know, I lived in an ashram for six months and, you know, served people and all of those things. It's the thing because we're suffering. I remember my, I was married and I would go to um, the ashram and he'd go, don't you think it's odd that you want to live in an ashram and I want to buy a new Porsche? And like, <laughs> I think there's something odd about this relationship. It doesn't really match, <laughs> right? Like, no wonder he was fine looking for somebody else, right? We weren't speaking the same language. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's and so I, can, I know. And I can accept that today, yeah. right? Because there was something more that wanted to come out and be expressed through me and really it was this work it's like I love to be with people in their what is emerging and what wants to be really be born into that to me like that's like everything I know it's so good isn't it and I think that's why being with my children and their meth addiction and heroin addiction was so deeply impactful for me it was like because I knew that they something deeper was wanting to emerge within them and I refused to give up I mean 16 rehabs Jared and did six different jail stints and you know like it's like I knew I couldn't give up because I knew that the, that something needed to come um I'm really, um, it may sound, I don't know, something, but as you were speaking about this, it reminds me of Mother Teresa. Mm. Right, you know, her gift is to love people into death, yes. to love people that society casts off to say you're never unworthy that to me is the fact that we have undesirables that we can throw away yeah 
it's um I think it's indicative of just a completely broken system that emanates from a lot of people that have contributed to that system. And I'm pointing right at me as long with, you know, all of us. And if you can do that for your own kids, can we do it for others? And it's so hard because we can't do it for others until we've done it to ourselves first. And man, it's deep, deep work. It is deep. And um, hmm. and yet, like, it, it is such God's work. And I think, I never think, why me? <laughs> All of that happened, right? It was like, yes, me. I mean, it was painful. Yeah, It was painful. And, and at the same time, I feel so lucky yeah. that... I have been able to experience all that I've been able to experience yeah. because I have such a richer life today. Right. I had a friend who came to see me in Sedona. I've been staying in Sedona for the last couple of months and she was here and she, I was talking about vulnerability and authenticity and all. And she goes, you know, she got mad. And she's like, why do we have to continue to talk about vulnerability and authenticity, Jen? I just want to go back to those surface conversations that we used to have. I just love how honest she, that's great. <laughs> I did too. But, and I will tell you, I cried, I cried. And I was like, and then I said to her, do you know what though? I, I had to do all of that. I had to go into authenticity and what that meant and vulnerability, because if I couldn't make meaning of what happened, I would have died. And so I think that's the process is that we're all trying to really understand and make meaning of the shit that has occurred in our one's life and, and society and the American dream. Meanwhile, while trying to have some joy and some fun and some living, right? Right. That's not easy. No. No. It's not easy. You're getting me into my nerdy self because, you know, this whole idea of meaning Hermeneutics is the study of meaning and we're having a major breakdown in hermeneutics right now. And it's, it's giving, I don't know what's coming, what's emerging on the other side, but so many of our meaning making capacities are breaking down, but it's not even just meaning. It's our capacity to understand mm -hmm. so many systems are breaking down right now on the planet. And I think it's kind of exciting. It's terrifying, yeah. but it's, because it, it, it's another one of those fractal things. I'm noticing it in myself. I'm noticing so many people are experiencing the same thing where they're really in breakdown and they're reinventing and they're reworking and they're figuring out new ways to live because they're saying this isn't working and it's same as happening on the planet. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we can now talk about aliens for real. We can now talk about, you know, that the, we can- Have we talked about aliens before? <laughs> you and I haven't. I don't know if we ever know. I'm obsessed with aliens right now. For like the last six months, I'd spend like my guilty pleasure of like getting in and looking at the, oh my gosh, Jen. I know, we could, we could go, I know, that's a whole other. The other day, I'm in Sedona, right? And so the other day I see this, a silver triangle thing and it goes and it's flying like 
this. And then all of a sudden it just flies away. And I'm like, I think I saw a UFO. I'm sure I saw a UFO. And, but the point about it was, is like, we can now talk about these things because our world is changing. We're not pretending anymore. And I think that's what I love is that, you know, like I opened up Apple news today and I saw the French president or ex-president Sarkozy, he might be going to jail, right? Like when, when I was growing up, we didn't have those things. Presidents didn't go to jail. Presidents didn't get in trouble for corruption. We didn't have, we didn't at least have these conversations. It was all sort of kept under, you know, the ruse, if you will. And now we're having authentic conversations. And that's uh, what is changing is that We want to see truth. We want to see behind the curtain. I want to know that your son or your daughter or that you personally have struggled with addiction or something, right? Why do we want to bullshit each other? I mean, yeah, it's a good, it's a good point you make. I could say a lot of reasons why. I just choose not to use those reasons anymore. It's comfortable in the moment, but It's a fleeting, ephemeral comfort. And so good luck while it lasts. Enjoy it. Right. And if anything, you know, one of the things that you and I like, you know, like one of the things we hated and the thing that worked so well is what's in this space, right? Like we hated that, right? But, But when you can get to what's in the space, God, it's moving. I think that that question, so let's set a little context for, because I'm forgetting sometimes that there are people outside of us right now. Inside of a good conversation. You know, the question of like, what's in the space is to really get out of like the normal routine ways of being. To notice, like put your attention on something that's deeper in the space around. Like what is everyone feeling and noticing? We all have access to different versions of space. And... What I'm noticing is that what's in the space is infinite. Mm -hmm. It's the universe itself. Mm -hmm. But when someone asks me to say what's in the space, whatever I'm attuned to, that version of infinity, that slice of infinity will show up. Mm -hmm. Does that, I mean, that's that's an abstract concept. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. It totally. It's a way to, to take a self- notice of like, this is how the universe is showing up from my unique being in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and from- also fall into collective shared space with other people. Go ahead. Well, and I was just going to say, so from there, it really allows for us to begin to step into feeling. Yeah. Step into hmm, stating what our what is in our space. And then from any time we can state what's in our space, we can begin to shift and change how we yeah. want space to be. And that to me is transformation in itself. But it's in that that we can authentically relate to one another. It, it reminds me of the, the fact that the, the feminine is on the rise, that we're paying more attention to the emotional body, that there's not this sort of masculine dominance that it's cerebral, shut down the body, shut down the emotions, that that kind of 
cultural hegemonic bullshit is really crumbling all around us. And thank God for it, you know? Because um, I think I think the rise of the feminine is just allowing more access to the phenomenological world around us. Yeah. And thank God for it. Yeah, really, thank God for it. I mean, we need more of that. And, and what it also allows for us is to step deeper into our heart and going back to what you were saying, it allows for us to see humans and be with humans, all types of humans in different ways. Yeah. So that we aren't giving up on humans because they are so important. Everybody is worthy. You know, we, uh, Jared and I had a, had a coach that used to say that if, if you could see yourself the way Jesus saw you, you would kiss your own feet. Hmm. And I always remember that just so beautifully because it's so true. Yeah. And that's where we want to leave people. Yeah. That's where we want to leave people is feeling that way. And so that was my way of being with my kids and their recovery and their addiction was like, I don't care. I know you're on heroin and I'm going to be with you anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the truth is, is like, that's how I want to be with everyone is go ahead. Ask me. Did you find that the more you could love them, the more you could love parts of yourself that you deemed unlovable? Yes. That's the thing that we do. We think that this external world is actually external. The external world is just an un like a, a, a version of the inside. Yes. And loving that which is unlovable is allowing us to love parts of ourself. Yes. Yeah. And, and we really have to like, we're, I mean, the, the, the self-love revolution, if you will, that this revolution is is um, loving ourselves into, into being, loving ourselves into living, loving ourselves into authenticity, loving ourselves into everything that we've ever, we ever wanted is right there. Yeah. Yeah. Because what I want people to know is that not everything your parents said is true. Mm. Not everything that society has said is true. You get to dive when you love yourself. You get to dive into what your truth is. And that's what I want to emerge. Um, It has been the, I don't know, the most riveting um, story that I have ever read in my story. And that, my friend, is what I want people to know is that their stories are so interesting and so much more important than the stories that are outside of themselves. It's a, it's a great place to start wrapping up because I think we're about time. Um, yeah, sure. I, uh, I had such a good time talking to you today. Me too. I always so, yeah. Um, tell people where they can find you. Yeah, so you can find me at jenniferlovelycoaching.com. You can send me an email at jenniferlovely at mac, M-A-C.com. 
And um, you can find me on Facebook at Jennifer Lovely or Jennifer Lovely Coaching. So I'd love to hear from anybody and I'd love to just hear what anybody has to say about all of the things that we were talking about too. Just oh, like, wow. we went over yeah. a lot. It was, yeah. it was a fun, I love where it went. I loved our conversation and how it emerged. You're the best. Um, any final words? Yeah, um, I really want to leave people with um, that it's possible. It's possible to change. It's possible to step out onto your journey and that to not give up, that each step is um, you're moving towards more of who you really are and to keep going and not give up. Love it. And I also want everybody to know how much I love you. And um, thank you for being that man in my life that just held me. I love you too. Thank you. Thank you. Love. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in this topic and would like to explore it more, you can contact me at jared at jaredandersoncoaching.com. Spelled J-A-R-E-D and Anderson with an O. You can also check me out at jaredandersoncoaching.com where you can book a free discovery session and see what coaching might do for you. I also welcome feedback, so don't hesitate to send me an email with your thoughts on the podcast. And finally, I would invite you to rate and review this podcast. Once again, thanks for listening.